Hey, Andy. Hey, Jed, how are you? I'm doing really well. It was great to see a fish pick at the top of Edgewalk here last week. Uh, I've been missing those. Thanks. Yeah, I've got a backlog of them. Uh, and so I need to I need to continue to get them out. I really have like a, a lot of them piled up. And I'm also dealing with problems with spam filters. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to sort out how to actually get the ones out, the ones that are, are, are appropriately fish porn, get them out, but without having them always get caught in people's spam filters and teachers complain they can't access them from school and so forth. But enough about that. I've been concerned about you. Do we need to have like a moment of silence for the Kings, or are you really doing okay? Are you in denial? What's going on? <laughs> the the beam uh, was extinguished this week, and yeah, we are still um, uh, regretting that. But you know, it's interesting. Uh, it was my birthday, and so we ended up going to the game. Uh, but the only reason we went to the game was because the first birthday plan we had was to be in Yosemite, and we were all set for an incredible weekend there. But you probably heard Yosemite closed because of, you know, the, the excess um, melt and, and the flooding and all that. So, you know, it was a complicated weekend here. Um, and all I know is that when I saw your fish pick, I just, we've talked a lot about, hey, we have a shared love of the American West, right? So, and we've talked about going to the Bob Marshall a lot. So we got to figure out a way to record uh, a walkie folk in the Bob Marshall someday. We could, and there's some education folks. Terry Ryan's out there. So I know Steve Farkas likes to go out there and go backpacking. There's some good education folks around, so we could actually we could do we could probably get some good uh, some good guest folks. And some of the folks in Wyoming or excuse me, Idaho education are super interesting. Uh, there's some some really great folks out there. So I agree with you. Terry had me up there for an event a couple of years ago, and I was really very impressed by the breadth of reform efforts that were going there. Um, but hey, as far as developments this week goes, you know, uh, I was going to maybe lead off with just some thoughts about um, about Nation at Risk, you know, hitting its 40th anniversary. Um, you mind if I riff on that to start? Yeah, us yeah. Off? Go. I know you've got some thoughts. I think we both read some of the same articles this past week. Yeah, I mean, when when Valerie Strauss at, at you know Washington Post comes out with a just complete hit piece, just trying to recast the entire history of of nation at risk as having been uh, a huge mistake. And in fact, you know, uh, the, the frame for that was somebody looking at some of the greatest historical mistakes of, of you know, that have ever happened, including, you know, uh, uh, Napoleon's invasion of Russia. <laughs> and somehow or another, that gets to be the frame for considering like what the impact of uh, nation at risk is. Uh, and of course, we see, you know, Diane Ravitch the very next day, you know, saying similar things. My, my own sense is that, uh, look, we can we can attack it for being too political. We can attack it for, you know, various procedural challenges. But I think it is just a milestone where not 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 like Sputnik. Sputnik was, OK, we got to get our acts together on math and science instruction during you know the Cold War. And then Coleman report was really like, hey we got to understand just how big the gap is between black students and white students and what is really causing that. But I think that nation at risk was this moment where just kind of like across the entire range of educational activity uh, for the first time, we saw that the well-being of you know the country is dependent upon how good our public education efforts are. And I thought it was really interesting. You know, the economist came out with this uh, you know, very unexpected uh, a publication about a week ago or two weeks ago, 
about the success of the American economy and how it's really actually done very well over the last 25 or 30 years. And one of the things that it cites there is our higher ed excellence. But they continue to cite, you know, our K through 12 problems as being something that's that's a drag. And, you know, I think that, you know, Nation at Risk was probably the first place that really made us focus on the fact that overall our K-12 efforts are in fact a drag. Yeah, I mean, and what you what you raise there, wh one of the critiques you often hear about uh, um, no, about Nation at Risk is this idea that, well, the schools are actually pretty good, except they're just not good for certain groups of kids. And you, you hear that a lot. And weirdly, you hear it a lot from like self-identified progressives who are basically saying the schools are actually pretty good if you don't count the poor kids, or you don't count the black kids, you don't count the Hispanic kids, which is a is a crazy thing to say. Um, it's kind of racist. And yet it's a sentiment you hear from, from the left sometimes. Um, and it ties to this idea about the American economy. The American economy has been able to persist despite problems in education and not just recent problems in the nation of risk era, but even longer because, you know, for a while we had a strong back economy and so not a strong mind economy. And so if you had a, if you had a good work ethic and you, and you, you could do work, you could have a middle-class lifestyle and sort of educational achievement didn't have to be part of that. That has changed. And then second, just a numbers game. I mean, people used to talk about, well, you know, sure, German engineers are better than American engineers, but we can put four engineers on the same problem. And that really kind of was, we, we won a numbers game during the 20th century. You can't beat China and India and countries like that economically with, with, with numbers. You, we've got to beat them with educational quality. And so that that critique I've, I've heard for a long time and it has never sat right with me, not only sort of just ethically and from an equity standpoint, but just practically it's kind of it, it doesn't matter and my own view and i've written about this as you know is that like our future talent is all these kids who are underserving right now like if you want more engineers some of those kids are your future engineers but you have to put them in a position to be able to to do that and have those have those kinds of choices um and i agree with you it was seminal in terms of like the moment and what it kicked off and i think you can quibble with aspects of it it was a political document interestingly like there's this whole view of it is like this gigantic conspiracy but uh, i would highly recommend lou cannon's biography of reagan you know, he wrote he, he wrote about reagan when he was a governor yep. and then covered him at the white house and there's they talk about nation there's a couple of pages in there about nation at risk and it talks about how um uh this was sort of a throwaway thing for them they didn't expect this to take on the life it did and so forth they kind of they kind of fell into it um less than it was like this like elaborate orchestrated effort. And, you know, as you know, Jed, in general, most people who have con conspiracy theories about all these things government is doing have never actually worked in government. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> on a good day, it's <laughs> it's a lot. Um, and, and anyway, so uh, he talks about it, he sort of just kind of fell into this. I think it, it, it's good reading in these sort of sinister things. You know, the one thing with that article, though, that that um, that Strauss republished and look, if I I suspect the Venn diagram between people who get their education news from Valerie Strauss and people who listen to our podcast. I don't think there's a whole <laughs> lot of overlap uh, there. I mean, that's just not a particularly good place to get your news. But um, uh, it made a really good point, though. I think the standards movement, it's been a big push. It's it's had a, it's actually accomplished a lot of good things. We need to figure out, you know, what now. And you and I talk about that some. But it did result in the minimizing of career and technical education. And I think there is a place for that. And we need to think about what does CTE look like? 
I think a lot of CTE advocates and a lot of people, there's a lot to answer for there in terms of tracking. And there's some reasons that that people are skeptical of CTE, but we do have to have a conversation there. And I thought that was a point the article made as a potential downside that was worth engaging with. And as you know, like ch charter schools, there's some of them that are, that are trying to focus on that. And people are trying to figure out what are ways to do CTE that don't just become tracking. Yeah. I think also like the overlay of the, the, nation at risk time frame and the broader changes in the economy really been looking at some of this is it called the meritocracy trap is that the book from a couple of years ago um that really kind of went after the notion of american meritocracy and really talking about you know how the affluent got um so great at educating their own kids to perpetuate you know their special benefit that, you know, it has created, you know, a, a, a very compelling argument against meritocracy broadly, right? And so, you know, are, are we as a society getting to the point where we're going to like focus so much of our collective investment in a very, very narrow slice of kids, right? And, and feel like the economy is going to be able to be okay for that? Or, you know, are we going to fi finally figure out a broader investment uh, in, in all kids? And, you know, um, those that like attack a nation at risk, I think risk um, undercutting an argument that even more investment, you know, that's broad, you know, for the 99% is central to what we should all be thinking about. Yeah, you know, if, if, if a few years ago, the Ed Trust had some data out and it basically showed, and I'm going to get this a little wrong, but directionally, that basically kids, uh, kids who got A's and B's um, in the lowest quintile, lowest two quintiles, were going to college at the same rate as kids in the upper income quintile who got A's and B's. And that was sort of, you know, one way you sort of see sort of, you know, systemic problems in the American education system in the data. And so to your point, like, folk, like one thing you, you, look at that and you say, okay, well then this is all bullshit and we should get rid of it. But another thing you could look at that and say, and this is obviously how I look at it, is there's a real return to college, especially for poor kids. So what do we need to do to make sure those kids in the lowest quintile, particularly those really hyper-talented kids are are getting the opportunities they need? That's the thing we need to fix. But, and, and we have had this push in the last few years that, oh, college, it's all a waste and so forth. And the, the data, the, the data don't show that for starters. And second, it's weird because it's pretty much everybody saying it are people who went to higher ed and have benefited uh, from that and are now running around saying, oh, no, it's it's a little there, there, there's something there that's a little un, unsettling. But the the equity push on how do we get those students, those lower income students, like that seems like that's the work that I think that's the reason a lot of people come to work because they do think that's our future talent pipeline. That's our yeah. future talent pool that's not engaged as fully as it could be right now. And as far as education policy goes, I think we suffer from societal amnesia. And so when something like education, uh, when nation at risk comes up, we're talking about four decades ago and the opportunities to like write whatever the heck you want to because of our amnesia are, are, you know, are ripe. But if we look just at what happened two or three years ago, uh, we really saw this come out with, with Randy Weingarten and being put under, you know, the microscope right now for, what was you know her role in uh, during COVID and, and opening and keeping things closed? I have some you know thoughts about that as well. But uh, where 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 do you get us started on? No, this we talk? can go. I know you. I know you have some thoughts, and I've got some thoughts. The one thing I'll say, something you said that was just embedded in there, we should surface. The Economist's coverage of education lately has been really good. 
I agree. Um, I totally agree. With and, you. Yeah. I mean, really strong mainstream coverage and not just like this, this recent stuff, but just, you know, over the last year or so, they've just been like doing some really smart, uh, some really smart stuff that that's worth reading. Um, yeah, no, I think we, can, I think we can tie off the nation at risk. I do. It's appropriate. I just heard the news this morning. Um, you know, I suspect by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be more widely around, uh, Marshall Smith, Mike Smith, who was undersecretary of education, the Clinton administration, Dean of Stanford, uh, out your way, among a number of other roles at, at Hewlett, um, uh, in California as well, uh, passed away this morning and just, what, I mean, you think about the standards movement, you think about the progress that's been made since Nation at Risk, like Mike was pretty instrumental in, in, in some of that work was super thoughtful, um, a real big thinker, uh, but a real big thinker was open to other ideas. The thing that one of the things that impressed me about him a lot when I first got to know him is how willing he was to engage with perspectives he didn't agree with. He wasn't sort of a tribalist. Um, uh, and uh, and so we should, as, as we talk about, so the nation of risk and that progress, we should certainly call attention to that because he, he, he certainly made his contribution. Yeah, well, I, I thank you for recognizing him because that is a, it's a, it's a big moment. He was definitely a pivotal figure. Um, uh, but tell me, what, what do you make of this? Uh, I mean, well, it's interesting because like nation of risk, I went back and I looked at Terrell Bell, you know, when he was being in, 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 interviewed by the Senate Education Committee before he was, his appointments were approved because he was a, Secretary of Education under Reagan. It was just such a deep and thoughtful discussion. And Orrin Hatch and, and you know, Kennedy are there and they're, you know, they're, they're respectful of each other. And they actually talked about some depth of issues. And, uh, you know, I think Mike Smith was there at a moment when that kind of depth was possible. And then you contrast that against Weingarten, you know, in Congress last week with Greentail. Oh my gosh, it's just a completely different environment. Yeah, I mean that I didn't watch a lot of that hearing um because it was just a circus and I thought what Marjorie Taylor Greene said was way over the line. Um and and what what it see if she wasn't sort of clearly insinuating something she should have made yeah, that clear or apologized for it. Like so way way over the line. Um but at the same time like the, everyone wants to talk about that and not talk about like there's there's a lot of historically amnesia and this was only a couple of years ago we're not talking about nation at risk we're talking about 2021 and 2022 yeah. um and so it was sort of it was one of these things and i find like so many of these things these days you, everybody wants to find good guys and bad guys and you just instead you're like yeah i don't like any of this um like your 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 answers like rather than a rooting interest your your answers just yeah no thanks i've started investing more at charter folk in some of the archival newspapers so that we can see what were people saying about New Jersey charter schools in 1997? What were they saying about public schools in general in 1993? What were they saying in Washington, DC before charter schools came along just to try and set the record straight? Cause I think it's really very important. And when we have an amnesia from a societal standpoint on education issues, when um, people can't remember, they don't want to remember the past then people can just say, well, charter schools are actually, you know, creators of problems that we're actually responses to. Um, but that's that's broader. That's that's over a 30 year time frame. I mean, just but I think you're putting your finger on the problem that Randy's running into. Her M.O. over the years has always been just say whatever you need to say yeah. In, the, yeah. in the moment. And that worked for a long time, longer than I think a lot of people thought it was going to work. The problem she's bumping into now is everything's recorded. Everything's digitized. And people can reach out. And so you saw like her account, like Terry McAuliffe, like that New York Times article, Terry McAuliffe wouldn't even confirm 
some of the stuff she was was saying. So yeah, no, that didn't happen. And then Lori Lightfoot on the closing stuff came out today and was like, yeah, no, like that's not how it went down. I think that the, the there's a there's a increasingly short half life to that strategy, and it's catching up with Randy on this issue because you don't need to do archival deep digs or go to dusty libraries. Anyone with a you know anyone with Google can do it. And the other thing that she really tries to, you know, just attach herself to for justification is, oh, the polling said, and all the parents in our schools said at some moment. Now, first of all, I don't think she's crisp on what polling there existed when. Um, and so she's really able to like, you know, try to have some more flexibility along those lines. But the other thing she just absolutely does not take responsibility for is in terms of forming public opinion and forming parental opinion, what your union and your teachers are saying over and over and over again is, is changing the views of the electorate. And, you know, when you have clear stories in country after country after country in Europe, where they were able to open up the schools, you know, in that following spring and had virtually no health problems. I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, a, a, a set of organizations like Randy's on top of just pushing out some stuff that's just fundamentally not accurate actually does in fact sway opinion in very big ways that I think she ultimately should take much more responsibility for than, than she's willing to do right now for sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I think my general thing, you got to get the spring of 2020 was crazy. Nobody yeah, knew. Totally. We didn't know how this thing was spread. I was actually moonlighting as an, as an EMT during that time. And like we were getting, nobody knew what was going on. You're getting conflicting guidance on how this thing was trans. I mean, it was, that was a confusing time. And it was, you know, so it was confusing for everybody, you know, whatever your distance from it was. But so the, to me, the problem became like, when you started to like, I remember I wrote a piece, um, later in the spring saying we need to have open air summer schools and we need to like start thinking creatively about this. And I got attacked for like that. I, you know, I wanted teachers to die and all this stuff. And like, and that's when you could start to see, okay, this is getting away from us. It's getting tribal. Um, and we're going to need some leadership. And obviously the white house was, was no help. And you, you cannot, you cannot help, but run the counterfactual here of if we had actually had steady leadership at the white house, instead of this, that, circus show we had if you'd actually had steady leadership would that have helped lower the temperature on some of this stuff um not that you could have solved this from washington but you would have just had clearer direction and so forth that's unknowable but that's something i wonder about but the interesting thing with the polling that you raised jed one of the things we saw as soon as schools would open in communities the polling would start to shift about whether or not they should be open and I think which, you know, there's no way to know for sure, but my sense on that is partly what we're seeing was despite everything, people still trusted their health officials, their local health authorities, their schools. And so they figured if the schools were closed, there was probably a good reason that the schools were closed. So they supported keeping them closed. And then when they opened, they conversely assumed, well, if they're saying it's okay to go back to school, it's probably okay to go back to school. And you saw public opinion change. It was very hinged on this question of whether or not the schools actually were open or not. And I think I think that's so I, I do think you can point to the polling and say some parents didn't want to. And I think some parents clearly did not want to even when schools were open. And one of the things that states, some states did a good job, some states did a lousy job is what kind of virtual options and other options were you continuing to provide for families who weren't comfortable or who couldn't be comfortable because of medical conditions, either with kids or in their household or whatever. Um, 
Uh, and that, again, that was a very mixed job. But I think the polling, it's a misreading that it was just nobody wanted this to happen. It was done against their will. It was, it was more fluid than that. And because again, people were looking for leadership. They were looking for guidance. And despite like all the missteps, they still, you know, hope they, they trusted public health authorities to try to tell them what to do. It's why one of the most damning moments from the testimony, or at least from the articles I've seen characterizing, because I didn't watch the whole thing myself either, uh, was the focus on whether Weingarten was using her influence to push the CDC to change what it was recommending. That is really, you know, a, a, a foundational issue. And she should really be held accountable for trying that to yeah, and how they were using like different language so it wouldn't look like they were doing that because they were focusing on certain teachers. There's a lot of sleight of hand here. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, there's a record and I think people are super frustrated um, and you're starting to see that you're starting to see that uh, you're starting to see that come up uh, and you're and you're seeing more and more and not just in, in conservative media, you're seeing more and more just questioning about this. But we do have to say, I don't know if you want to move on from it. I, I'm not the only one who's thought this. I think a lot of people uh, thought thought this, and I've, I've seen a few people talk. You know, it, it it does take just. We should pause and just honor. It takes a certain kind of um, I don't know what you would even call it. Not political skill, something to make Randy look sympathetic in this whole thing. It takes a it takes a certain kind of something that apparently only Marjorie Taylor Greene can muster and has. That you were, I mean. It, it was it was like, wow, like you 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 can make her you make her look completely sympathetic because you're over the line. And I, I just don't think we can leave without just like pausing on that superpower uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene apparently has. Yeah, that was a very unfortunate um, part of this whole thing um, for all sorts of reasons. I think where I would you know go next or where I would extend it as it relates to like topics we want to get to is this recurring question of like, did, did Weingarten and did the unions in general, quote unquote, overplay their hands? And we saw a lot of people that were saying that they overplayed their hands. And, um, and I basically um, argued against that. I did not see any evidence that the unions themselves believed that they were overplaying their hands. If anything, they were just, you know, doubling down. But I do think it's, you know, as I think more about it, it depends on which poker game you're talking about. If you're talking about politics in urban settings and deep, deep blue, there's no, there's, there's no overplaying there. They can do whatever they want to do. The only place you can really overplay it is if you're basically in a 50-50 red-blue political context where the union can be so extreme that they actually will take some of those blue or they'll influence the independence. And so I think that like the place I would, well, Virginia is certainly one of these places, but New York was one as well, where I think like Hochul felt as though this race turned out to be way closer than she was thinking. Uh, and so she made a commitment during the campaign that she would lift the cap on charter schools. I don't think she really wanted to do that. She uttered one single word saying that she supported lifting the cap. But now everyone after the fact has been holding her to the fact that she needs to she needs to um, uh, deliver on her promise. And this week we see that there's going to be some number of schools that are going to be able to open. For me, the irony I wrote about this this week at Charter Folk was that the one place in New York 
that would not be allowed for a new charter school is Harlem because they have more than 55% of their kids in public schools already attending charters. But just the irony of all the places, of all the places where charter schools have done incredibly great work and we would want more and where historical inequity, you know, and just um, system dysfunction has been more pronounced than anywhere. That is the one place in the state of New York where apparently we're not going to be able to open up charter for the next couple of years. But yeah, I know you follow that more closely. The, the New York stuff to me is always sort of slightly impenetrable, right? <laughs> um, uh, just the politics up there are like, you know, it's it's checkers, chess, and like five other games going on at the, at the, at the same time. I actually just have a few people I call when I actually need someone to explain it to me. Um, and I used to be on the board of the, of the, of the New York State Charter Association. So um, like, I, I should know this more, but it is, it is like, pick your, pick your various metaphors. It is complicated. Um, can, so, I, can I ask you, Andy, just from a, from a, from a blue perspective, like, you know, do you, well, we find that democratic governors in purpley states, they can't stand on a straight support or defense of the public education system. You see Murphy in New Jersey, he waffles, and there's going to be a lot of charter school growth. Um, and we see, you know, that Huckle's had to do this. We see that in Rhode Island, we got, you know, new supporters. In Pennsylvania, we got a governor that's a Democratic. But these tend to be in these, you know, places where it's where it's red or blue. But do you, or, or there's a mix of red and blue. Do you think in places like Chicago and in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, where it's just absolute blue, are politicians going to be able to stand on a defense of the public education system? Or are they too ultimately going to waffle and say some kind of reform needs to happen here too? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look, everyone's cross-pressured right now. I think one piece of context we don't talk about the unions and what poker game they're in. The big poker game they're in is the post-Janus poker game, where their membership yeah, is declining. And so they need to figure out ways to engage their members. And like this seems weird to talk about in these terms, but strikes and all this stuff, they are member engagement strategies. They get people fired up. And to some extent, they don't, you don't necessarily like the merits of it matter less. And you, you will talk to people be like, yeah, but this isn't really about the merits. This is about activating the membership, activating the base. Um, and so, and so they're trying to figure out like, how do they survive in a world where people thought Janice, I, I think like you, you talked to a lot of people, they thought like the unions would go out of business in a year because of it. And so it is, it is, must've had no effect, but it's not like that. It's a slow glide. It's going to take some time, but you're really starting to see the impact Um uh, on them. And so they, they understand that that's why, and that's why they're so like invested in who the next labor secretary is and, and um, who the next administration is. They're, they're facing an existential threat and that's the poker game that they, that they are really playing. I don't, I mean, I've thought for a long time, yes, they're going to overplay their hand. Yes. They're going to overplay their hand and people have short memories and, and, and it comes back. And I think to your point on Glenn Youngkin, it depends what's on offer. Like Youngkin was able to win because he was reasonable. He was appealing to people and so forth. And like, if you think of like, if you look at like 2022 and you look at a lot of the candidates that the Republicans put on the ballot, they wouldn't have been able to succeed in that environment. So Youngkin was sort of a perfect storm of a ripe electoral environment and the right candidate um, that, the, that the Republicans ran. So I don't think it's as as sort of straightforward as that, that they're going to overplay their they're, they're going to overplay their hand and what that means in these cities is i think people will get dragged kicking and screaming to this but it's going to take a while and um uh there's just gonna be a lot of collateral damage uh in the interim 
but if there's nothing good on offer, you're not the Democratic coalition will not split over questions like this. So like you you need an environment of real political competitiveness, both inside the Democratic Party and and and, and across uh, across party lines. And we just in this climate room, we, you don't have that competitiveness in a lot of places. Yeah, I mean, Glenn Youngkin's at like 58% now, I think, something like that. Like, you hear all this noise and so forth, but like, he's generally like, you know, within the state, uh, reasonably popular, uh, particularly in the context of, a, of a, you know, of, of, of 2023 and closely divided politics. And so I just, that, that looks to me to be a little bit of an outlier case relative to how this stuff's going in most places. Well, you were telling me about the new content standards that were adopted in Virginia and how it might relate to some of these, um, you know, red, blue wars, culture wars. Uh, educate me a little bit here. <laughs> you, want my, you want my my PTSD? I should, I should probably I should, I should probably be talking to your wife about this on the couch. <laughs> um, uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience. This is my second go around with with standard setting in Virginia, and it it has changed a lot. It was highly political, actually. What we were talking about you would talk to some people and you'd be like what you're saying isn't true and they would say yeah well you know we got to engage the members um and it became just very red on blue and just sort of stop yunkin and there were some mistakes the administration um uh i mean there, there was clear that you know the 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 first set of standards that were put forward the board rejected them eight to nothing so it's not like there weren't mistakes but this final set of standards we passed is actually pretty good it's actually got some california stuff in it as a matter of fact um, uh, but the rhetoric around it is just deranged. Um, it's starting to slow down as people, some people are actually reading at the Washington Post and editorial where they allowed that, you know, a lot of the criticisms being leveled against them were just in factually inaccurate and so forth. Um, but it, it was, it was illustrative to me, Jed, just the time we're living in, it's hard to have nice things, right? Like the end of the day, the product we ended up with was pretty good. Um, the board adopted the, the the standards themselves unanimously, um, uh, including Ann Holton, uh, who's you know you're not you're not a Virginian, but her her family's history here in Virginia around um, issues of integration and issues of addressing historical discrimination, racism in our state. She even she's on the board and was like, these are standards are they're pretty good on how we teach about that, and they're a real step forward. So it was like a, it was like a good moment, and the board worked hard collaboratively to get there and yet the atmospherics were just terrible and the sort of just the conflict narrative and the conflict entrepreneurism. And it was just kind of, for me, just illustrative of, of like why we, why it's hard to get anything done right now in this, in this climate. And so to your earlier question, like to move things forward in some of these places, we need people to come together and that's just not yeah. happening. It's all about a conflict narrative and, and, and sort of stirring up differences rather than figure out how to bring people together. I think there are so many different kinds of sta content sta standards and content standards to be thinking about I, um, that it might be worth a, a conversation at some point. I just think it's fascinating how much difficulty we're having adopting these things. And, and we tend to argue about what is the single point of view we want to get to on this issue or that issue or this issue. And yet what we know we want students to learn is how to grapple with multiple points of view. Right. And it doesn't make, I just don't understand why the standards that we attempt to adopt are arguing about a spectrum of ideas. I think there are some ideas that can be just, just beyond the pale, don't include them, they are just you know extreme. But we want to like share a range of opinions on these kinds of things 
and come forward with tools for kids to um, figure out how to grapple with that that range. And there's yeah. just we don't model that for kids at all. No, and both sides have things that they dearly held things that they think are just matters that are not open to varying points of view. But among like all the normies, like the other 80% of people are like, yeah, those are open to, those are open to contention. Um, and so it's not like, it's not about whether or not you should teach about reparations It's whether should you only teach about them one way or should you teach the case for and against? And should you teach that in like a really nuanced way? Because among African-Americans, there's differing views on that, right? It's not, should, no, so you don't teach in some sort of reductionist way. You teach it with all the nuance and, and complexity there. Um, one of the things I'm very pleased about the Virginia standards is Zora Neale Hurston is in there, who to me is like representative of somebody who is not easy to pigeonhole, uh, clearly thought for herself, you know, was, was actually censored uh, during her lifetime. Um, and so like c complicated people like that, I think help with what you're getting at. But the other big issue is simply, do we even teach content or do you just teach sort of inquiry and skills or very little content? and mostly inquiry and skills. And that's an interesting dynamic for the charter sector, I think, because my personal view is I like a more content rich education. I think like, and, then, and I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that like not a knowledge rich education, you get better outcomes, better literacy, all of it, that knowledge is, knowledge is essential. And then once you have thing that, that knowledge, then you teach people to think critically in the things we, we were talking about, but it's not a sort of both. It's a, you need content and then you, you learn to, to think about it. But within the charter school context, obviously there's schools that are all over the place from yeah. like core knowledge charter schools that are very content focused to very progressive, purely inquiry based schools um, that are very light on, you know, on an emphasis on, on content, very project based, all of that. And they can all live kind of in the charter world. And I, and I do think you can't you just you said it earlier. You, there's stuff that's got to be off the table. You can't just be like, well, anything's good. Societies have to make choices, and you can't dodge those. I think people in the choice community who think choice will solve that are. I think that's I think that's wrong. But you can have more sort of if you have a more choice driven system, you can have more on these sort of emphasis on on sort of pedagogy and themes, and it does it, and it does create more space for that. Yeah. Well, I'd love to come back to this topic of how to teach across a broader content. Uh, and a, a range of, a, of perspectives. I would say that some of my favorite moments in teaching uh, were those when I actually think I did it pretty well. There were times I did it wrong again and again and again, but by my seventh year, I was better at it than I was in my first year. And, and I was also, you know, just, just starting to learn how to balance. If I never shared what my perspective, my personal perspective was with my kids, they got bored. Right. And and they were genuinely very curious and they felt like they were being messed with if they never knew what their teacher actually thought about an issue. On the other hand, if it was the teacher's opinion all the time, that's a, so I, I tended to give it like once every 20 days, once every 20 issues. But every once in a while I was going to give it and they, you know, they were it would help them stay with the lesson all the way to the very end. But I just think these ideas about how we teach a range of perspectives and how we also try to get kids to move away from extremes to being able to see on both sides of issues, um, you know, is something that we should really get better at. But we never, at least from my perspective, as, as it relates to content standard adoptions, 
find that to be a priority. Yeah, no, and we're actually talking in Virginia about how do we, what kind of tools and training do you provide to teachers to help them teach these things? I mean, there's there's, there's a couple of problems. One, a lot of te teaching programs and teachers on education, they don't get the content on this. And, and part of some of the craziness of the last few years, when you scratch beneath the surface, it's not curriculum coming out of sort of state governments or, or even school districts, it's teachers freelancing. They're just finding stuff on, on, you know, on Google or Pinterest or whatever it is. And, and so you got to provide good materials and all that. And then you got to provide training because you don't just wake up in the morning knowing how to, how to do this and sensitive stuff can come up. I used to do a lesson where I would take kids to, um, uh, to the superior court to see, uh, and you could usually count on there be drug cases. And those are the public yeah. defenders, generally fourth amendment kind of defenses. So it was, it was how I taught the fourth amendment. Um, and but that would also like you go to court on any given day, you're going to see stuff that's going to raise a whole bunch of questions about society for kids and different questions about about different things, including obviously power, race, things like that. And so like you, you don't just wake up knowing how to do that. You've got to um, yeah. you, you need training and so forth. How to how to navigate those conversations in ways that people here feel heard, regardless of different points of view on on what are often contested questions. Yeah. Well, you brought up to me this week, the core knowledge study. This will be, a, we'll wrap on this issue, right? But- well, I um, leave on a good note. Well, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating, first of all, to see some kind of research that would suggest that core knowledge um, is, is generating such positive results with kids. The thing that's, that's hard for me to uh, separate there is that all of the research was in Denver charter schools. And- um, you know, you know already I'm a fan of Denver charter schools. And I just know that um, a lot of the successes that we find within charter schools are so context specific, are so organizational specific, it's very difficult to extrapolate out. Um, and I, I wonder whether or not this same set of organizations, should they have chosen something different than, uh, than a core knowledge approach, probably would have been successful with that other approach as well. But there's clearly something within this that we should dive into further, which is what are the real value adds coming from the, the core knowledge uh, approach? Yeah, well, um, just like one thing you raised there that I found interesting about this study is I do think we haven't done enough to think about sort of what are the compounding? I was always like the Teach for America studies would keep coming out, but I was always particularly interested. How do Teach for America teachers perform in really high performing schools? Do we see a different effect and a more powerful effect there you saw with teacher America teachers, you see a sort of, you know, not insignificant, a modest effect um, that on average they're they're better than than peer teachers, but it's it's not a huge it's not a huge effect. Um, but you're like that's across all schools. What happens if you put them in like a really high? Do you get a compounding effect there? This study I was interested. In, so what happens if you take a, a you know and you put in good high functioning schools a really strong knowledge rich curriculum and as it turns out, you, you you see a fairly substantial effect, the size of which we don't usually see with with interventions. I mean, it's very it's very significant. The study we should back up. Um, I don't know. Are we doing show notes yet? That's only our third show. Um, uh, the study is by uh, a number of people, including a couple of University of Virginia professors, uh, Dan Willingham, David Grismer. Um, uh, and so I would urge people. It's on my blog at eduonk.com. You can find it. Um, we'll, get it, uh, we'll get it referenced in the show, in the show. Notes. Perfect. Um, uh, um, 
anyway, so the study, you know, it shows pretty, it shows pretty significant effects. And it was a lottery study, which I like, you know, it's, it's basically a natural experiment that not, you know, over-enrolled yeah. schools create, which over-enrolled schools is not an ideal circumstance, but it does create, it does create um, uh, good opportunities to do studies. And I think it's significant um, uh, for the reasons we talked about. And just, again, it shows sort of, a, you know, a knowledge rich curriculum. And this was always Don Hirsch's thing. It shows how crazy education politics are. He's always been considered a conservative and in part because maybe because the timing when his book came out at the same time as Alan Bloom's book and so forth. But like Don is anything but a conservative. Um, he's extremely progressive in his politics. And he believes one of the most sort of egalitarian things you can do is give everybody equal access to knowledge. And we don't do that. That's why his curriculum is structured the way it is. And to see results like this, I think it's significant. And it's the kind of thing that if we had a healthier politics, I think we'd talk about more. I was trying to figure out what would be the analogy of like a medical study with these kinds of results. But um, I mean, it is significant. And you would think we would be talking about it like substantially more uh, than the attention it's gotten. Well, I speak about charter schools can sometimes warp these results because you don't know if it's unique to the context and whether it can be extrapolated out. But another thing I think is valuable from the charter school world just generally is we have organizations where studies like this can occur and uh, and they can really start to inform conversations. So on this, uh, as well as on a, a number of other issues, I think uh, the existence of the charter school space there is doing what we want it to do from a societal standpoint. Um, but hey, you know, great to great to check in as always. You know, good good to see you. We'll get on to we'll get fully on to baseball season now for the ne for the next one. But uh, great to see you and and fun fun to catch up. All right, you take care until next time. See you, Jed. Okay, bye, Eddie.